Would you take your Bible, I hope that you have it with you, to Hebrews chapter 4. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 4, and for this morning we'll tend to the study and learning of verses 1 through 5. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 1. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of us should seem to fail to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. May the Lord God grant his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated, and children, you can be dismissed to children's church. Ray asked a moment ago, he said, are, are we having children's church? To which my wife said, yes, we are. And he said, I thought we were giving the workers a break. I think he understands well that the workers deserve a break from time to time. He may very well be the cause of that need. <laughs> this text in front of us is really a, a great opportunity, and I'm very excited to expound on it for us this morning. It is a text that conveys to us the nature of faith and the simplicity of the good news of Jesus Christ. The nature of faith and the simplicity of our salvation. Let me, let me invite you into an analogy. The analogy I'm going to use quite a bit today, in fact it's the title of the sermon, is the eighth day of creation. We know that for six days God created and said it was good. And on the seventh day, he rested. That is magnified in our text. I want to invite you into an analogy that the church has sometimes historically used to help us understand the completed work of new creation. Okay? That's the analogy. Day eight, which in the calendar would be Sunday. Day eight completed work of new creation. I want to talk a lot today about how that analogy helps us understand the emphasis of our text. In order for you to well understand that the Bible expounds on this eighth day, and not just my imagination, let me walk you through some context that I hope moves our comprehension into better understanding the work of Christ as we think about it in the analogy of day 8. Genesis chapter 2, 
we are very familiar with the text that says on the seventh day god finished his work that he had done he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done so god blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it god rested from all of his work in creation and we're also familiar with the quote from john 19 verse 30 when jesus had received the sour wine he said it is finished he bowed his head and gave up his spirit the eighth day might help us think in a fresh way about god's revelation of what jesus has done the eighth day might help us so this also fits into the old testament uh, festival keeping the eighth day sabbath what is an eighth day sabbath well it happened quite often actually to the jewish people they were commanded to observe sabbaths on the eighth day in a seven-day week the first day and the eighth day were essentially the same day just the next week with this one difference the eighth day represents something for them we would call new creation so if you were an observer of hebrew custom there were some commands that god gave the people that would have made you scratch your head you would have said wait wait you you might not have your days right you just told us to observe a sabbath on sunday and then even the next sunday and so you would have scratched your head at places like this command in leviticus 23 jesus or the lord is commanding the feast of tabernacles and he says for seven days you shall present food offering to the lord on the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the lord it's solemn assembly you shall not do any ordinary work on the eighth day you shall celebrate the feast of the lord seven days on the first day shall be a sabbath rest on the eighth day shall be a sabbath rest hmm. first day of the week and then the eighth day which is the first day of the next week which is in our understanding sunday so note how the lord prescribes first and eighth day sabbath during the feasts and how the hebrew observer would have wondered about such a thing this might help us see together that god had in mind a significance theologically for day one and day eight you see we all participate in the genesis 2 work we all do we all participate in creation the question for hebrews 4 is do we also participate in the day 8 work completed so the title for the sermon is that the eighth day of creation from hebrews 4 1 through 5 in our text the author continues to go back to psalm 95 psalm 95 david is relaying to his people the lessons they must learn from the exodus people what did they do well what did they fall short of and david wants the people to learn that lesson and the author of hebrews picks up on david's desire for people to learn and tells the church you should learn from the lessons of the exodus generation the main point continues to be a warning there are six 
warning passages in Hebrews. This is the longest of them. And the warning is namely this. Be on guard against an unbelieving heart. That unbelieving heart may lead you to fall away from God and ultimately be kept apart from His rest. The concern that we see clearly in these first five verses of chapter 4. The reader should fear, should fear that they might not enter God's rest. In verse 2, the author reminds them that simply hearing the good news or being around people who do believe the good news is not enough, not saving. Being in this room saves no one. Even nodding your head as we talk about the necessity of Christ alone does not save anyone. And then in verse 3, the author calls to our attention the imperative of rest, God's rest, us entering into God's rest, and explains that that rest is only accessible by faith, by believing. Not just by hearing, but by believing. And then... In verses 4 and 5, there is the call to enter into God's rest, which dominates the paragraph. But at the same time, the author argues that rest has been available ever since God completed the work of creation, citing Genesis 2-2. Even though God's rest was accessible, the people in mind here historically, the Exodus generation, didn't enter into it because their persistent unbelief. That's the warning. So here's the way I would lay out our study of these verses. First of all, I want you to hear the warning. I want you to hear the warning again. Then, I want you to know the good news. I want you to know the good news. But the text warns us not to end with just knowing the good news. The people stood at the boundary of the promise and knew the good news, but they didn't believe and therefore didn't enter into his rest. And that's point number three. I want to warn, know the good news, and then confirm that we would say, by faith we are entering God's rest. Let me pray and then start first with the warning in verse 1. Lord Father, you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. Any hope of salvation depends then on you. And as your word is proclaimed, we are so thankful for the promise that it bears fruit and does not return empty, but it produces by its very proclamation, faith and salvation. I pray, Father, that today as your word is preached, that Christ would be honored. And we pray to you in his name. Amen. So would you look with me right away at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, so we understand, chapter 4 is a continuation of chapter 3. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. 
Therefore, what's happening here in chapter 4 is two paragraphs that are a continuation of chapter 3. And that continuation is expressly a warning, and it, it ends in verse 13. If you're looking at chapter 4, you go down to verse 13. That's where this lengthy warning text ends. The author applies this warning to the reader, telling them to take seriously the words of warning so they don't fall short as long as there's still time. It's very important that you understand the urgency of a moment. Time is fleeting. What is our life? It's a vapor. It's here for a while and then vanishes away. <clears throat> the time of the warning matters. And the warning is namely this. Be afraid. We may not think of fear as a Christian characteristic. We may not think of fear as an admirable emotional response. But we are called to fear. In fact, the fear of God is the very start of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. Let us fear. Now, it's important that you understand the author is not saying, I'm not afraid, I got it. But reader, you might not have it. The author says, let us fear. And it's not just an English interpretation issue. It is a first person plural. The writer includes himself with the reader in the need to be afraid. Showing that the author includes himself in the admonition, the warning is not restricted to so-called weak Christians, but to everyone who calls themselves Christian. Now, when in Scripture we're told that fear is good, we should not imagine a paralyzing fear, but rather a fear of motivation. How many of you, may I ask, have ever done any sort of rock climbing? Or uh, what's the other one where you come down? You repel, repelling. How many of you have ever done any sort of rock climbing or repelling? Some of you. Okay. And as you do that, a healthy measure of fear gives you caution to make sure that all of your equipment and rigging is correct. That's the Bible's call to fear. Not paralyzing, not, well, there's no hope. I, I'm going to run for the hills and hide myself from God. But rather a fear that says, have I thought lately about my hope of entering into God's rest? Have I checked all of my riggings? Have I found what, in fact, I am trusting in? The fear of the Lord is good. The reader, in fact, should fear God for this reason, in verse 1, lest any would fail to reach his rest. The rest. Pastor Will thankfully expounded on it, and I would repeat it now. The rest is certainly rest from our hard work of being good enough. But the rest is not just confidence the rest that we are entering into or hopefully entering into is a place as well. So listen, the believer enjoys rest in Christ. That's Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are worn out by trying, and I will give you rest. Certainly, it includes a confident conclusion of safety. However, 
the author is also making it clear that when we think of entering into God's rest, it is a place. Because he's using the historical analogy of the Exodus generation. Standing on the border of the promise. The place God had said, I will deliver to you, and there you will rest. And the author goes into Hebrews chapter 11 and 12 and makes clear that the place of rest is our everlasting home in heaven. The place of everlasting rest is the emphasis. But I want you to understand that entering into God's rest is so joyful that it pierces our condition now. A place of everlasting rest is the backdrop onto which our Sabbath rest is painted. A place of everlasting rest is the backdrop onto which our Sabbath rest is painted. There is a warning that we may not enter either. God's rest began when he completed the work of creation after six days. And what happened on days seven and eight and nine and ten? What happened? The Bible tells us the account. After God had completed the work and rested each day during the windy time of the day, God would arrive in the garden to walk in the sweetest fellowship with Adam and Eve. The rest completed when God's work was done included sweet fellowship. I want you to understand, friend, everyone in the room, the warning is real. I wonder if we've we've tried to counteract the false teaching of works-based salvation. Pastor Will called us to Acts 15 earlier in confession and assurance. And they were adding to assurance. They were saying, hey, yeah, Christ, as long as observe the rites, be circumcised. And I wonder if we have so dogmatically said, no, nothing else, that, that we've pushed ourselves into a mindless assurance where we think ourselves to be guilty if we fear God's judgment. No, I mean, Jesus says things like, I, I come to you and I speak to you that you might have life and more abundantly, so stop being afraid. But I want you to be right here in Hebrews 4 and hear the warning is serious. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear God who destroys both soul and body. Mark chapter 9 
Why is it that we fear God? We fear his judgment. We fear his wrath. Mark chapter 9, verse 47. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God than to be thrown into hell. For in hell you will not die, yet the fire will not be quenched. Hear the warning, and don't assume it's for someone else. Hear the warning, and humbly receive it as a good gift to all of us. Second, know the good news. Know the good news. Verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard, the message of enter his rest, did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They didn't have faith in common with the others. So first, the good news message did not benefit them. The good news of come into my rest as long as it is still today, before it's too late, enter into my rest. That message did not benefit them. The proclamation of good news was given to both those who believed and those who did not believe. Yet, for those who did not believe, hearing the good news had no profit, no benefit. Simply hearing the gospel was no guarantee of entering into God's rest. The wilderness generation observed the third Passover. They saw the reminder that the blood of the Lamb covered the sinner and spared them from wrath. They just get done celebrating the third Passover. They are standing at the border of the promise. And they heard the message, if God is for us, who could be against us? He has promised to deliver us into this land of promise. And they said, no. Therefore, the good news was of no benefit to them because they did not have in common or, as it says here, were not united with those who listened by faith. Well, I read that several times and I thought, united with those who, oh, Joshua and Caleb, to name two, came back from spying the land and said to the people, yes, we understand the challenges, but we believe the promise of God. These people who instead said, uh, it sounds risky, it sounds dangerous, seems like peril is ahead. Let's pick a new leader who, don't forget, they wanted to appoint to walk them back to Egypt. staggering, isn't it? When they heard the challenge ahead and did not believe the promise of God, they chose rather in the foolishness of their unbelief to pick out a leader who would walk them back into slavery. It's not enough simply to come to church any more than it was enough to be the people who were hearing the promise of God in the Exodus. It's not enough to hear the gospel or even to understand it or even to appreciate the beauty of the gospel unless you receive that gospel in faith. You will not enter God's rest 
and will not be saved. If you hear the gospel and do not believe, if you do not confess yourself a sinner in need of God's promise of a Savior, then the very good news becomes a two-edged sword to us. And we hear not, here's the good news, enter into my rest. But we rather hear, look at verse 3, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The good news to freely enter into God's rest. I want to give you an illustration of what it means to enter into the rest of God. John G. Patton was a missionary in the South Pacific Islands. One of his endeavors was to write a translation in their language of Scripture. He encountered several challenges, but one significant challenge was that their language had no word for faith. Can you imagine trying to explain the good news without the word faith? He was frustrated by this for some time. And then one day, he saw a group of hunters come back from a long hunting expedition and return to the village. And in their fatigue, they sat in their chairs and loungers and cots and said... It is so good to stretch out here and rest. Patton jumped to his feet and said, that's the word. Went quickly and wrote it down. I want you to understand that by faith, the weary sinner stretches out on Christ to rest. Being upheld by his good news. Know the good news. Know that the rest that we are invited to is a rest simply to stretch out on Christ and say, it is good to stretch out here and rest. Not bringing anything supposedly with you, but believing the promise of God. Would you take your Bibles to Numbers chapter 14? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Chapter 14. So way back early in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 14. I want to read for you verses 6 to 12. The reason I want to read these verses is because we just read something that said there were people who didn't enter into rest because they weren't united with those who believed. What does the belief of Joshua and Caleb look like? That's Numbers 14 and verse 6. Numbers 14, 6. Joshua, the son of Nun, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy out is exceedingly good. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Do not rebel against the Lord. 
Do not fear the people of the land. They are bred to us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. All the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord then appeared at the tent of meeting and all the people to all, all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. You see Joshua and Caleb hearing the people say, if we do this, we're going to die. Look, look at the end of verse 4, what I just told you a moment ago. They, they say to each other, let's pick a different leader to guide our walk back to Egypt. The stupidity of sin doesn't even say, let's pick a new leader to build a home here. Just pick a new leader to walk us back to slavery. And Joshua and Caleb hear this, and they tear their clothes in disgust at the people's unbelief. So what does it mean that they were not united with those who had faith? It means there were people, not at all, like Joshua and Caleb, who would not enter rest because they did not believe. The good news is in Christ, God is for you. Do not fear the accuser. Do not fear the conflict with your ever-present flesh. Do not fear the opposition of challenges before you. God is with us. But, rather than believing that God is with us and will do as he promised, there were those who heard the good news but did not believe it. Hearing the offer of God's rest, we can understand why the writer of Hebrews has such an urgent warning about sinners' need for faith in the promise of God's rest. The question is, how can we enter into God's wonderful rest? The answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. So, be warned and fear. Do not sit with a false sense of assurance that says something like, we have Abraham as our father. That was something Jesus had to correct in his earthly ministry. Do not presume to say of yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. And I don't, I don't know how that would translate into your life right now as I say, be afraid. You say, I'm not going to be afraid. I, I don't know. I don't know what you would say next. I don't, a myriad of things I suppose people might say to kind of quench the fear of God's judgment. However, there is an answer. And it's good news, and it is assurance of God's rest. Point number three. Enter the rest 
of the eighth day. Enter into the rest of the eighth day. Look, look with me at verses 3 through 5. For we who have believed enter that rest. We have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, so rest existed. Yet they did not enter into rest because they did not believe. Verse 4, for he has somewhere spoken. Uh, it was probably two months ago. Josh helped you understand. It's not because this author doesn't know the Bible, but it's understood that we all know where that's been said. Like it's kind of commonplace. For he has somewhere spoken in Genesis chapter 2 of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, though, it says, they will not enter my rest. So there is rest. That's, that's all that's happening here. Verse 3 is making a plain comparison. I don't want you to miss it. We who have believed enter into rest. The second half of verse 3. Those who do not believe do not enter God's rest. There was a day when the todays ended. And the Exodus generation would not believe in God and would not enter his rest. What this means is that we must rely not on what we have done, but on Christ alone. I, I want to draw your attention again to uh, the theological decor in our worship center. The signs that are behind me. I want you to understand that the Bible contains no good news of itself. That grace is effectiveless sentiment by itself. That your faith is futile and pointless if there is no object. The Bible alone proclaims Christ. Grace alone is our gift because of Christ. Faith alone cannot be just a broad, self-confident belief I think things happen the way I'll suppose they happen, but faith in Christ. So none of the alones matter if we don't have Christ. None of the other ones matter. Hebrews 4.10 Whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his I read you a quote from Phillips. Trust in the Lord now when the promise of entering, entering God's rest still stands. For it will not profit any of us to hear without believing, without stretching out on him who came to save, calling us into God's eternal Sabbath rest. And then in our text, in verse 5, this is the third time that the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95, verse 11. 
they will not enter my rest. The third time that one verse is quoted shows us the importance of the argument. He's just emphasized that God's rest is available since the beginning of the world. As long as it's still today. But the wilderness generation lost their today. Ran out of today's. The reader lives in a day of opportunity. Rest right now is available to you. But there will be a day when rest will no longer be available to you. The reader must repent and not repeat the faithless mistake of the Exodus generation. That moment is of immense importance. Hear the warning, know the good news, enter into the rest of the eighth day. Let me finish then our time by saying a few more words about the eighth day. Exodus chapter 31, verse 15 says this. Six days shall your work be done, but on the seventh day, this is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. We all participate in the physical work of creation. What we have just spent time handling is the question or the matter of, do you also participate in the completed work of Jesus Christ? So the eighth day and its significance. Genesis chapter 17, verse 12. You've probably read this or text like it several times, especially as you read the Christmas story. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generation, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. He who is eight days old. Why did he pick eight? Well, just because, maybe. Maybe. Or maybe all these things together are meant to point us to something else. Should it help us that God commanded his people to observe circumcision on the eighth day? Should it help us see an illumination of the cross of Christ as the final mortification of the flesh taking place on the eighth day? In flesh, he died in our place, thus mortifying the flesh and bringing death to an end. Is this why God commands his people to observe the cleansing of the flesh on the eighth day? We must be marked by the covenant of God's grace as his people. If the number seven indicates fullness or completion, so for seven days it's complete, then maybe it helps us to see that our own full life of 
being good and doing better. If you lived all of your days, the full number of your days, doing the best you could, you would not reach day eight. You would be stuck in the first seven. You would be well acquainted with creation, but not yet have reached the date of new creation. The fullness of your life, lived by your own ability to do better, would leave you short of the eighth day of creation, new creation. This is called, this new creation, this sign or mark of the covenant of God's grace is called the circumcision of Christ made without hands on the eighth day. In the end, the eighth day is new creation. It's everlasting life. It is hope. It is the death and the resurrection of Christ. We celebrate the resurrection on the eighth day, the completed work of Christ. Considering death and resurrection of Christ as the eighth day of creation, I hope it helps you to see that Christ is for us new creation. Christ is for us rest and everlasting life. The storyline of Scripture is a story of God glorifying new creation through death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as we think and talk about the eighth day of creation, I think that the Bible points us to indicators that the eighth day is significant in redemptive revelation. Like the other types and shadows ordained by God to help us learn, I think the eighth day is helpful. Now, the eighth day requires us to first hear the warning that the first seven days living in physical creation in our mortal flesh for all of our days cannot accomplish us any merit with God. The fullness of your life lived as well as you possibly can will not earn us any merit with God. Two years of walking through the desert following the pillar of flame was of no merit on the day when they must believe the promise of God and enter the land of promise. All of your fullness of days, all of your todays, as long as it's called todays, will be inadequate without the next day, without the new creation. So hear the warning. I thought about it this way. I do think that we are a people who have probably often refuted the false teaching that you can be good enough to be saved, you'll have bad days, but as long as you seek out confession for those bad days, you can be restored to the good days. And then you'll have bad days, and you'll kind of wane in and out of confidence and rest. And hope. And I think that we have probably refuted those claims. No, by the completed work of Christ, we know that we have life. And we've said that so 
often that now when we come to Hebrews and hear, you should be afraid that you might not be a Christian. We say, that doesn't sound right. I argue against people who say that. I get it. I do get it. And I thought about how can I word this to help people understand the point simply. Here's how I would word it. I can promise that all who by faith are in Christ are forever prepared for the everlasting rest of God. I can promise that. That all who by faith are in Christ will not perish but have life. I can promise that. But I cannot even come close to promising that everyone who is living their life in a Christian congregation and hearing the need to trust in Christ and agreeing with that need to trust in Christ will enter into the rest of God. I cannot promise. You see the difference? If our life is hid in Christ, we will not perish. But if we live a religious life, near to religious people, agreeing with religious hopes, I cannot promise that we would not perish. Hear the warning. Know the good news. It is, it is amazing good news. It's the same good news that Joshua and Caleb, in such angst, in such zeal, proclaim to the people. They tear their clothes and they say, If God is for us, we cannot die. <laughs> That's good news. If God is for us, we cannot die. Enter into his rest. On the seventh day, God finished his work and rested. And seven days are completed. And on the eighth day, once Christ had proclaimed, it is finished. He bowed his head, conquering sin and death, and rose victoriously, the champion of new life, the Messiah, the Savior, the promise that all who are found in him will enter God's everlasting rest. The work is done. Enter today into the rest of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the inspired and preserved scriptures that lift high our Lord Jesus Christ, that demand our gaze and our hope, our confidence and our trust be placed only in him. Help us today by your spirit to identify any of the things that might threaten the only, that might, might want to partner with our hope, that might want to 
assure us a little more that we are entering your rest. Help us to identify those things and, and not allow them to compete with or accompany Christ alone. Father, I pray that all of us would right now in humility hear the warning as long as it's today to gladly and in faith embrace the Sabbath of Jesus and the reality that Jesus leads us to everlasting rest. Thank you for making your word in a way that it's not just a collection of stories randomly, but from, from the seventh day of creation to the cross of Christ, it's plainly telling us the same story. And we are glad to hear from you as we're taught by God the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.